Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 2. Last week, I summarized Exodus chapters 1 through 5, essentially the backstory of Moses prior to his attempts to liberate the Israelites. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm resuming the summary of Exodus in chapter 6 and working through chapter 9. So let's get started. At the end of chapter 5, in Moses' opinion, things weren't going as planned. He had demanded that Pharaoh let the Israelites go, and the dictator scoffed at his request. But not only that, Pharaoh ordered a crackdown on the slaves. Now, they not only needed to make bricks, but were required to gather the straw necessary for production themselves, an ancient version of vertical integration. And, in essence, he increased the workload without increasing the available manpower, all while demanding the same output, a knowingly impossible task. The Israelite leaders blame Moses and Aaron for the mess and let the two brothers know it. Chapter 5 ends with Moses praying, well, really complaining, to God about his plight as well as that of the Israelites, which gets me to chapter 6. This chapter begins with God responding to Moses from the text, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they reside as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. End quote. And Moses did as God instructed, and repeated to the Israelites the words God had given him. But Pharaoh had broken their will, and more importantly, their spirits, with his cruel treatment. And, as a result, they did not heed what Moses told them. So God spoke to Moses again, Go and tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the Israelites go out of his land. And Moses answered him, repeating what he had said when God initially charged him with the mission. The Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? poor speaker that I am. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt." Which gets me to the middle part of chapter 6, which is a pause in the narrative. The next twelve verses trace the offspring of some of Jacob's sons. Initially, this seems out of place. After all, why not just place this at the beginning of the entire book? Of course, there are numerous theories. My theory, well, not really a theory, but just an opinion, is that at that point in the narrative, it didn't really matter. 
But we all know what's about to happen, and now the genealogies will matter. Anyway, the text goes into great detail concerning the ancestors of Moses and Aaron, and then provides the names of Aaron's sons. And this detail gives us the necessary proof that both Moses and Aaron are heirs to the covenant between God and Israel. I'll avoid reciting the list, but you know where to find it. The chapter wraps up with the same conversation between God and Moses that's been repeated several times in the text. God tells Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I am speaking to you. And Moses replies, Since I am a poor speaker, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And it's not clear if this is a repeat of a prior discussion or something new. Not that it matters. Overall, what is exceedingly clear is that Moses really doesn't want the job. Which gets me to Exodus chapter 7. In the beginning of the chapter, God addresses Moses' concerns again, essentially with the same response. God will speak to Moses, Moses to Aaron, and Aaron to Pharaoh, telling him to let the Israelites go. But it will be to no avail as God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And because of the hardening, the king will not listen, and God will intervene and lead the Israelites from Egypt, company by company. At the end of the first paragraph, we find out that Moses is 80 years old and Aaron is 83. Remember last episode when I discussed Moses asking Jethro to leave? Well, now you see why that conversation is a little weird when viewed through the lens of our modern society. Back to the text. Moses and Aaron then presented themselves in Pharaoh's court, as directed by God. In order to impress the king and show that God was on their side, Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. Pharaoh has his magicians brought in, who all do the same thing with their staffs. Pharaoh probably chuckled, well, only for a second. As Aaron's staff turned snake, then gobbled up the magician's staffs turned snakes. Despite this, Pharaoh remained unimpressed. God speaks to Moses again, this time saying, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand by at the river bank to meet him. In taking your hand the staff that was turned into a snake, say to him, The Lord... The God of the Hebrews sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die. The river itself shall stink and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink the water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, its canals, and its ponds, and all of its pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. End quote. What seems to be missing is that middle sign where Moses' hand turns leprous and then turns back. The text skips over that entire step, just in case you were paying attention. But back to the narrative. 
Moses and Aaron did as they were instructed, and God did as he promised he would. The river turned to blood, the fish died, and the river stank. Seriously, that's a quote. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink its water, and there was blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. And this is regarded as the first plague. As a note, after the summary of the book, I'll circle back and explore each of the plagues in further detail. After this, Pharaoh had his magicians do the same. And now I'm beginning to see why there was an Egyptian empire. They had perfected chemical and biological warfare to use on their enemies. But I digress. Since his magicians were capable of doing the same, Pharaoh remained unimpressed. And this was despite that his populace would get no water from the Nile. They had to dig wells for drinking water. The chapter ends with the phrase, Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. A teaser for what is to come. And that brings me to chapter 8. At the beginning of the chapter, God tells Moses to go back to Pharaoh and again demand the release of the Israelites. This time, he's to warn the king of a plague of frogs if he does not do as told. And Moses and Aaron follow God's instructions, and the frogs come, as promised. But it's not just some frogs. It's so many that the pests come up into the palace, into Pharaoh's bedroom, in his bed and did the same for essentially all the Egyptian populace, to the point that the frogs were found in their ovens and bowls. Now, I know a few people who would have made lemonade from the lemons and had frog legs for dinner, but the Egyptian populace did not feel the same. Pharaoh again has his magicians repeat what Aaron has done, and this was a bit of a mistake as it only added to the population of frogs roaming the land. Then the unexpected happens. Pharaoh signals a bit of weakness when he instructs Moses and Aaron to pray to the Lord to remove the frogs. Pharaoh goes on to state that if they do, he will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. The text continues, Moses said to Pharaoh, Kindly, tell me when I am to pray for you and your officials and for your people that the frogs may be removed from you and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, As you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, the frogs shall leave you and your houses and your officials and your people. They shall only be left in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs that he had brought upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses requested. The frogs died in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. End quote. Sorry, Kermit. It would seem that this was progress, but it wasn't. Pharaoh, as soon as the plague was lifted, hardened his heart once again. I know you've met some people who just couldn't get out of their own way. Pharaoh seems to be that way, too. God speaks to Moses and tells him to tell Aaron to bring on new vermin. And, with that, it was time to cue the third plague. Now, take note, different interpretations list different pests. Both the New Revised Standard and the New International Versions list gnats, while the King James list lice. 
my head is already itching. Either way, the pests were so numerous that their population was compared to the dust of the earth. And, given that this was occurring in the dry clime of Egypt, that's a bit overwhelming. Also, there's a new twist. This was the first plague where Pharaoh's magicians could not duplicate the feat. I'm sure the king was not pleased. Oh, to be a fly on that wall. Foreshadowing. Anyway, the magicians finally get a voice and say, This is the finger of God. Pharaoh, though, did not give in, just as God had said. So, God tells Moses to approach Pharaoh again and demand that the Israelites be freed, else face a new plague, this time swarms of flies. And there's some irony here that makes me chuckle a bit. What animal could mitigate swarms of flies? That's right, frogs. But Pharaoh had tricked Moses into eliminating the frogs. Since there are no frogs, I guess they'll need a bunch of swatters, as paper, in this case meaning flypaper, had yet to be invented. And there is another hidden gem, modernly occasionally called an Easter egg. And yes, that was intentional. Anyway, this gem is hidden in the text. Apparently, the Israelites did not have to deal with the swarms, as they could not be found in the land of Goshen. You would think Pharaoh would have noticed this. Also, there's a bit of an unexplained delay, as we're told the flies aren't to arrive until the next day. Maybe Moses was giving Pharaoh the chance to sleep on his decision. Either way, the next day, and as promised, the flies arrived. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron where they all discuss the situation. Pharaoh begins, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the sacrifices that we offer to the Lord our God are offensive to the Egyptians. If we offer in the sight of the Egyptians sacrifices that are offensive to them, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, provided you do not go very far away. Pray for me. Then Moses said, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his officials, and from his people. Only do not let Pharaoh again deal falsely by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. End quote. Moses does as he said he would, and prays that the flies are vanquished. And God makes it happen, but Pharaoh reverses course again, as his heart hardens again. Seriously, is he that dense? River of blood, frogs, gnats, or lice, and flies. I'm sure his people were grumbling, and that's a serious threat to a monarch. And with that is the end of chapter 8. Chapter 9 begins with God instructing Moses, yet again, to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, this time with the promise of a truly deadly plague striking his livestock, his horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. With herds sometimes translated as oxen, 
other times as cattle, and flocks as sheep and or goats. Either way, the beasts to burden, dairy production, and sources of meat, as well as wool. And, as Pharaoh no doubt knew, many of these herds would take years, maybe decades, to rebuild. And, just like the flies, the Israelite livestock would be spared. Once again, he was given a day to think it through. As the next day dawned, Pharaoh doesn't relent, and all the Egyptian livestock were struck dead, and not a single Israelite animal perished. And still, his heart was hardened. Okay, so now it was time to get creative. Enough with Aaron's staff, which had seemingly been the tool that applied some of the previous plagues. For the next plague, God instructs Moses and Aaron to do something different. From the text, this time the New International Version, because it interprets one word in a more modern context. Anyway, the New International Version says, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. End quote. Once again, Moses and Aaron did as they were told, and boils broke out on all the people and animals. Now, at this point, it's unclear if the boils impacted the Israelites. The next sentence, though, provides a little guidance. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. And I'm assuming that the Israelite animals were impacted by the boils, as the Egyptian animals were killed by the previous plague. Of course, there are a few other possible but speculative explanations. Maybe the Egyptians had bought or seized animals that survived the last plague. Maybe it was non-livestock animals that were impacted by the boils. Or maybe some time had passed so that they had partially or wholly rebuilt their stocks. But the text is silent. Regardless, Pharaoh's heart remained steadfastly hard. God speaks to Moses and gives the same words, Let my people go. And this time, he gives a very stern and verbose warning of the impending disaster. From the text, This time, I will send all my plagues upon you yourself, and upon your officials, and upon your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I have let you live, to show you my power, and to make my name resound through all the earth, You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Tomorrow, at this time, I will cause the heaviest hell to fall that has ever fallen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Send, therefore, and have your livestock and everything that you have in the open field brought to a secure place. Every human or animal that is in the open field and is not brought under shelter will die when the hell comes down upon them. End quote. The explanation as to how the Egyptians had livestock is the same as the last plague, 
and the text remains silent. And we're told of how some of the Egyptians began to heed the warnings as they brought both their slaves and their livestock indoors to protect from the hail. Then, just as promised, the plague arrived, again sparing those in the land of Goshen. Obviously, presumably, the Israelites. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron again, and they essentially have the same conversation they had had after the Lord rained flies on them. From the text where Pharaoh begins, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord. Enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You need stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your officials, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Then there's a curious sidebar in the text. In the New Revised Standard Version, it's in parentheses in verses 31 and 32. Quoting, Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they are late in coming up. And there's a hidden message in here, and that's the time of year when this occurred. In Egypt, this places the hailstorm sometime towards the end of January or beginning of February. And, as many historians will tell you, details like this give the story credibility. Also, this gives me four crops to explain the significance of later. Back to the text. Moses did as he said he would and prayed. As he did, the rain, hell, and thunder stopped. But you know what happens next. Pharaoh's heart hardens, and he did not live up to his end of the bargain. And with that, Exodus chapter 9 ends. And this is probably a good stopping point for this week's episode. Finally, as a note to myself, and to let you know what is to come, there are several topics that I will be covering later. Obviously, I will provide as much explanation as possible of each plague. Also, I will cover the importance of the crops delineated in the text. Join me next week when I'll begin in Exodus chapter 10 with the locusts. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a great review. For those of you that have, I am grateful for your helping others to find the podcast. And finally, you can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And once again, for your benefit, if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss any. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.